0: I'm now joined in studio by Tommy Mancuso, president and co-founder of the BAD Investment Company, who back in December, they launched their first ETF. It's called the BAD ETF. The ticker symbol is appropriately BAD, B-A-D. Tommy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being in here studio. It's been a while since we do uh, a lot of in-person stuff.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so funny. So I did not realize until yesterday that you were actually based here in Kansas City And so we're doing this on the fly, having you in studio, but it's such a, a small world.
1: No kidding, no kidding. It's kind of funny. Uh, Kansas City is this little mecca, I would say, of quality financial companies. And we're all right across from each other's backyards. I mean, I, I think my drive over here was maybe five minutes. So.
0: I, I just can't believe we haven't previously crossed paths. I'm, I'm dumbfounded. Um, so, so let me ask you this L- let's start by, by talking a little bit about your background. And why you started the, the bad investment company, and then we'll, we'll certainly get into the ETF. Give us some background
1: here. Yeah, yeah. So basically, starting the financial industries right out of college when San Diego State at a, uh, 2015, and I was obviously I would say a younger advisor, and it kind of allowed me to have a different perspective, um, especially when you look at the average age of a financial advisor, which is you know north of 50 years old. Um, so through that though, I kind of had a, an interesting perspective where I saw the rise of fintech companies, the rise of retail. Um, you know. There used to be a higher barrier to entry into the stock market, but now it's your savings account when we look at the developments in Robinhood and some of the other fintech companies that are out there. So now we have you know this merger of quality information in the palm of your hand. You don't necessarily always need a stockbroker, even though I think everyone does. To some extent, we're not all industry experts. So you kind of put all this together, allowed me to develop, I would say, a unique perspective in the current landscape from a young, young perspective, young advisor perspective perspective. So given all the competition, my friends are all kind of doing their own thing on their own. I knew that this whole meme stock craze and everyone became their own stockbroker in 2020 during the pandemic. I knew that this whole meme craze and those things were not going to really be truly sustainable. So I wanted to create, I would say, an alternative appeal to this new wave of investors that was actually going to be able to offer them truly sustainable or long-term investments, not something that was just going to have a quick pop and then we're waiting for it to go again on some kind of short squeeze or meme craze, like I mentioned. So that kind of led me to this development of the bad investment company. And now that we've seen with kind of our flagship ETF, the bad ETF, um, it's a little bit contrarian to the current landscape right now, where we've seen this whole world of ESG, but there's been so much lack of clarity surrounding that to some extent. Um, there hasn't really been any statistical uh, you know, things that have proven that that's going to overperform. And that's kind of what got me here. I wanted to create a, a, a good name, a fun name that's going to create you know, some buzz in the industry. But also I want us to be taken extremely seriously at the same time and know that we're actually looking at the best interest of – the investor. And we don't think social stigmas or anything like that should be a primary factor when it comes to making investment decisions. We think if we're making decisions in an investment standpoint, it should be what's going to maximize returns at the end of the day.
0: Okay. So this is perfect because you were actually walking into studio as I was wrapping up my conversation with Yasmin over at Engine Number no. 1. And I'm not sure if you heard what she said at the end of that conversation. She said, it's hard to know what's good and bad when we were talking about ETF. So So I'm curious, how are you determining what is bad? Let's walk through the bad ETF and the overall investment thesis, and then we can go from there. So I I know this is Mm index-based. Just take us through the ETF itself.
1: Yep. So the index is right in the acronym. It's based off of betting, alcohol, and drug companies, B-A-D. Now, when I say drugs, that is primarily surrounding around the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. Now, we do have a 10% allocation for cannabis. And I'll kind of explain that here in a second. But how the portfolio is constructed is equal weightings of 33.3% of each of those sectors. So 33% betting in casinos, 33.3% of alcohol. But let me take a step back. We decided to take the cannabis sector of that 10% and allocate that in, from the a alcohol side of standpoints, so we have twenty three point three percent alcohol, ten point ten percent in the cannabis space, and we primarily did that because of the quality companies or the the quality companies in the drug sector that we didn't want to take away from, and the alcohol companies are a little bit top heavy in some of the bigger players, so we thought to kind of have a staple in there. You know, we'd talk, take those top alcohol companies. But we wanted to include cannabis in this It originally was not our uh originally not in our original plan but when we kind of looked at what is the future growth of the cannabis space we did see that this could offer some growth in the portfolio just given the current landscape legalization just kind of you know it being more socially accepted this day and age and then on the drug side that kind of fills in the gap of our second of our third tier which is biotechs and pharmaceutical companies. So there's about 57 holdings. it rebalances on a quarterly basis. Um, aside from that, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's primarily based off a of market cap, and the reason we did that off of the we wanted the largest companies in each of these sectors was to kind of mitigate some of that volatility that we may see. In small caps, we kind of see a little bit more of speculation, but or more speculative type of things. It may you know offer some stronger growth but at the same time, there's more downside in those smaller cap industries. So, focusing on the large caps in these allows us to mitigate some of that volatility, which is extremely important, because you and I both know that Investors make poor decisions when there's more volatile, volatile right? They don't there's you know that thing called loss aversion hurts more to lose something than it's rewarding to gain. So if we could protect them to some extent on that downside by just focusing on these bigger companies, we think it's gonna set them up for more long-term success.
0: And real quick on the cannabis side, I don't mm-hmm. want to get hung up here, yeah. but these are Canadian cannabis companies, right? These aren't swaps on US multi-state operators and those sorts of things. Th- that correct.
1: is correct. That is correct. So we are primarily all U.S.-based companies. Now, we do have some ADRs, which are companies that trade on New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or U.S. and uh, U.S. exchanges. But yes, primarily all U.S.-based uh, companies, unless they're an ADR that trades on another exchange.
0: Okay, so, so what I thought might be interesting here, if, if you think about the CTF overall, to your point, this owns a third in gambling or betting, mm-hmm. a third in alcohol or cannabis or, and cannabis, and then a third in, in pharmaceuticals and, and biotech. Let's maybe briefly highlight each of these categories. And- you know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you on the betting side, and, and you know this, but here in Kansas, the Senate recently passed legislation to legalize sports betting. And I believe this is now actually sitting on the governor's uh, desk. We'll see how long it, it sits yeah. there. <laughs> but but things do appear to be moving quickly. Is, is this where you see the biggest growth opportunity moving forward with individual states continuing to legalize Sports betting, or is that just a small sliver of the overall pie on the on the betting or gambling side?
1: Absolutely. I think that the sports wagering and some of the things that we're seeing on the ballots is definitely going to be kind of the jet fuel for the growth in our allocation overall. In the casino space, it's interesting, right? They may have gone you know, through tough government scrutiny, but now we're starting to see all the, you know, possible tax benefits that states can generate. I believe there's about 34 states have legalized some form of sports betting. We expect that to be, you know, probably federally legal in the next 10 years, if I had to guess, just because the government obviously wants to have their hand in some of these tax revenues that are are being generated. So you kind of look at that landscape. If something's being embraced by the government, which is interesting, considered this could maybe be a sin stock, yet we're looking at some of these industries, and especially in the casino space be embraced because there's potential benefits. I also think, you know, with the sports betting stuff, it's only going to pick up more steam. We're seeing advertisements in the NBA finals, NHL hockey. Um, it's almost engaging viewers more to some extent. And I think this is going to be good for sports overall, but also fantastic for the casinos, right? Because opposed to you having to drive to the sports book, now we're seeing, I think, 90% of tickets, sports bets are played are, are, uh Uh, submitted online, so now your sports book is your house. You can be on your couch and make a sports bet. You can pay attention to the game, get a little $25, $100 twenty five hundred dollar bet on there and I have a little bit more entertainment. So I think there's a lot of positives at the end and just, you know, the legalization of this is just gonna further grow. Um, so I'm excited for the casino space and you know, you look at some of the other tailwinds behind that, there's a whole reopening story behind the casinos. You know, it's struggled a little bit because of the exposure with some of our bigger companies like Wynn and Macaw out in China. But once we kind of get all that going and we expect by hopefully a fourth quarter of this upcoming year we're going to have this whole reopening casino play intact, and we think there's a big desire for people to go, you know, to Vegas and these other places.
0: By the way, the uh, the one negative with legalized sports betting here in Kansas, uh, an unhappy wife for me. I don't think she wants me <laughs> sitting on the couch putting a sports bets in. You, you mentioned the uh, the this reopening story, and certainly that plays into um, casinos, but. If, if we now move on and talk about alcohol and, and cannabis, I'm curious what you're seeing here. And I'm going to lead you just a little bit because I was just reading a really interesting Wall Street Journal article where they were talking about how people are finally getting back out. Uh, when, when you think about concert ticket sales and uh, sports uh, events, I mean, tickets are. They're just skyrocketing, the sales in this space. Obviously, bars and restaurants, vacations. I'm assuming that's having a positive impact on the alcohol
1: Absolutely, Absolutely. That's something we have definitely realized here is there's a need to get out. And you look at like something like Live Nation. You look at all the ticket sales with their earnings last week and whatnot. That's going to correlate to alcohol sales. And one thing that I found interesting is that even though we're in this inflationary environment, alcohol companies have so far been able to uh, – Uh, attract their customers or keep their customers with increasing their prices, which is why uh, InBev or Budweiser had just beat their earnings at the end of the day. It's one of those consumer staples as well in one of our portfolios, right? At the end of the day, people are going to drink their alcohol under most economic cycles, sometimes even more if there's some kind of recession that's being forecasted in right now. But with that being said, we're also in this reopening narrative, and there's a desire to get out. There's more events. There's more social. I I truly think people missed getting out and being social, and that's going to obviously, when we're out – People typically drink under those circumstances. And, you know, some of those higher margin companies are going to be out there. Last year, there was a little bit of a struggle with the alcohol uh, industry because of oversupply or some of these uh, RTDs or those spirited canned cocktails and whatnot. However, due to supply chains, these bigger players that are in our portfolio are going to be able to acquire them because they have the distribution strategies. They went and bought all the aluminum cans well in advance. So you're going to maybe see some consolidation in that space as well. So we're excited for the alcohol uh, industry as well.
0: Okay. And then briefly on the the drug or pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. side, just Mm -hmm. anything in particular standing out to you here?
1: Yeah, you know, the one uh, positive tailwind that everyone's pretty excited for is the mRNA technology that helped us kind of get out of the... Pandemic due to all the vaccines, they're going to start looking at those technology or that type of uh, biotech and see how they can apply it to other diseases. On top of that, we're looking at some in Europe. They're looking at uh, right now. They base a lot of their drugs off of country to country. They're looking for a more universal system, like the more like USA and the FDA. Think about it as the state. Each state needed to approve a drug there. It's not so universal. So that's going to be another positive tailwind for that industry. And then again we've seen the rapid deployment and this would be kind of the final thing on on the pharma side rapid deployment of these vaccines and these big pharma companies have learned how to uh, you know manage their supply chains get it out to the get it out to the public get them approved in a more rapid manner um so again you kind of add all those three things up there's a lot of tailwinds just around the pharma industry as well
0: let me ask you this just overall so Clearly, if you look at these three segments in the ETF, these are time-tested industries, right? They've endured multiple economic cycles. They've traditionally held up pretty well. Profitability h- has typically been there. And, and you were alluding to this earlier, but you know, if the past is any indication, we know that consumers are going to continue drinking alcohol and cons- consumers are going to continue gambling and consumers are going to need medicine and drugs. But if I look at the performance of this ETF so far this year, uh, in let's compare it to the S&P 500. It's down every bit as much as the, the S&P 500. What, why is that? Why hasn't this held up a little bit better in this environment?
1: I think that's a little bit uh, primarily due to some of the growth avenues in our company and maybe some profit-taking on the biotech and pharma side. We saw a little bit of a pullback there right? with all those companies that were high-rising stay-at-home stocks. We've seen that kind of come back to earth a little bit. And then on the other side, the casinos have obviously taken a bit of a hit, especially those, uh, those larger ones that have exposure to China and some of their lockdowns. So those things have obviously negatively impacted our fund to some extent. We do believe in the long-term outlook overall. As you mentioned, people are going to get sick, unfortunately. People are going to drink, and people are just going to gamble, especially if it's now in the palm of their hand as well. So again, we would should have we would have expected it to perform a little bit better under these circumstances, but getting the rapid growth in some of these other kind of companies and just growth com- growth stocks being hit over the past three months, it's to be expected that we're not going to be able to be perfect every time.
0: And also, in fairness, I mean, we're talking about a very short period of time, right? Yeah. We're talking, yeah. you know, five, <laughs> six months here. So, OK, before I let you go, um, I, I did want to ask you again, you, you heard some of my last segment and mm-hmm. I talked about the proliferation of ESG ETFs. And it's interesting because I would say if you look at the vast majority of those, they're actually screening out the types of companies that that the bad ETF holds. What, what do you think about that? What do you think about the proliferation of ESG ETFs and, and the fact that your holdings are being screened out intentionally from again, some of these
1: Again, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think we should sacrifice returns for social stigmas by any means. Um there hasn't been necessarily any kind of statistical evidence that ESG is gonna overperform or anything of that nature. Um and then again, you know, when we look at you know, ESG and how it's maybe impacted our society, or even today's environment. We've seen it struggle and impact our oil industry, and maybe be a little bit responsible because these oil companies are get, aren't getting the same funding. And I'm not going to say we're contra ESG at the end of the day, right? We really want everyone to do good. And I even think our our ESG rating is like a B or triple B or something, which is a little bit ironic. But when you look at our companies, at the end of the day, they've actually have already withstood government scrutiny. They've gone through all the pains of growth and all that type of you know things that come with any growing industry. And I think it kind of sets us up for the long term to be actually a little bit more. Sustainable than an ESG fund that maybe is a little bit more speculative. I think some of the issues too is just the lack of clarity. Um, you know, someone may score really well in the environmental social side, but fail somewhere else in the in the whole ESG scoring process. So if they could maybe refine what that process looks like, that would probably be advantageous for the industry as a whole. And I think they'd probably find that you know not every uh, company in the bad ETF is. A negative ESG fund either. So it's just a little bit ironic at the end of the day.
0: Well, Tommy, congratulations on the ETF. Now that I know you're in Kansas City, we'll have to go grab a beer and maybe put down a couple sports bets while watching a game somewhere. We can do that in person. We'll take an Advil
1: the next day, too. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But
0: uh, best of luck to you moving forward, and thank you for uh, joining me this week. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it. That was Tommy Mancuso, president and co-founder of The Bad Investment Company.